started what I think will be a fun and challenging journey through the book of Revelation uh, last week. And uh, if you are uh, new this morning or missed last week, there were just a couple of key things I'd like to uh, refresh on before we jump into uh, Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 9 uh, to 22. Uh, a couple things before we jump in there. Uh, Revelation um, is not just a book that teaches you about what's going to happen in the future. It does that. In fact, we'll see lots of visions in this book about future events. Uh, but Revelation is written specifically uh, to seven local churches who are struggling with various things. And John gives them visions of the future to speak to the present. Uh, that's the key to the book. We don't read Revelation wondering what's going to happen in 2050. We read it saying, what is Jesus saying to my present circumstances through uh, this vision of the future? All right. Uh, second, uh, we, we learned last week that the main theme is that God eventually will win, that he and his people will be victorious. And therefore, uh, as believers living in this present world that is full of evil and struggle, our role in that is to conquer. Uh, this word conquer appears all throughout Revelation. And uh, the idea of conquering is to overcome or endure. And we see in Revelation that we're called to conquer in the same way that Jesus conquered. Uh, he appears in Revelation 5 as the, as the lion who's conquered, but he appears like a slain lamb. So we should conquer like Jesus did by submitting ourselves to God's will, by trusting him, by pouring our lives out for others, even if it leads us to a cross. And it's that last part of Revelation, that uh, conquering like Jesus conquered, uh, that might be the most difficult word God could speak to us. Um, in fact, uh, if Revelation told us that we should conquer in the way that King David conquered, King David was an Old Testament hero, uh, we might have to go hit the gym, you know, get, uh, get, our, get our biceps going, uh, learn how to use swords, learn how to fight, do some, do some tough stuff. But eventually, King David conquered and had an earthly kingdom and had some prosperity and had life here on earth. Conquering like Jesus conquered is going to look different. Um, Jesus' life, his submission to God, uh, his love for others literally led him to a place of death. And as Christians in this world, it, may, it might do that. There are people throughout the world who are literally facing death for Jesus. But for, for us, uh, conquering will probably look like uh, hardship, persevering through hardship, not giving up on Jesus when life gets hard. And so uh, that brings us to Revelation 1, verse 9 to 20. Um, this first vision is going to set the tone for the whole book. Uh, it is going to show us who is the one speaking when we hear all of these hard things. We're going to see Jesus, uh, the speaker of this book, the one who is speaking to his churches. Um, and that's going to help us to obey whatever comes. So let's, uh, let's read the scriptures, uh, Revelation 1, 9 to 20. And then we'll pray and uh, jump in for a few minutes. Revelation 1, 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a, with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we... Uh, just recognize this morning that we cannot visibly see you. Um, and if we could, uh, like John, we would be undone. But we just pray this morning that through the scriptures, that you would enable us to see you with the eyes of our heart, and that you would prepare us to listen and um, to hear what you'd say. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I found in my life that hearing hard truths uh, depends a lot on who's speaking, that my ability to respond in a godly way to something that I may not like oftentimes depends upon the one who is speaking to me. Uh, I remember one time, I was uh, uh, back when I was in college, we did something called the hot dog ministry. We would go downtown and we would uh, cook hot dogs and feed homeless men, uh, kind of with the aim of sharing the gospel. And uh, I remember uh, I was talking to a pastor at a church, an urban church downtown, and uh, we literally had a 30-second conversation. And uh, when he found out this is what we were doing, he basically told us that we were the problem, that we weren't doing ministry, that we were just doing service. That we, we, we weren't involved in the lives of these people, so we weren't really ministering to them. And uh, I did not respond very well to that. Uh, in hindsight... Um, in hindsight, I think there was some, a little bit of truth of what he said. You know, if we're, if we're not entering these guys' lives, uh, if we're not uh, loving on them, sharing our lives with them, there's a sense in which our ministry to them is very limited. Uh, but because I didn't know him, and he did not show any care for me at all, right, uh, I did not respond well. So some years go by, I'm on staff here at East Cooper, and I'm sharing something going on in my life with one of the pastors on staff here. And he looks at me and he says, Leland, do I need to pray for you? Or do I need to take you outside and beat you up, beat some sense into you? And uh, I actually responded quite well to him because I knew that he loved me. I'd had, a, I'd had a relationship with him. I could see the love in his eyes for me as he threatened, I think very earnestly, uh, to let me have it. And that just goes to show, you guys have probably experienced this, that the person speaking the hard truths, whether you trust that person, uh, whether that person loves you, uh, whether he really is able uh, to do maybe what he threatens. <laughs> uh, that really dictates how we respond in many ways. And um, 
John, uh, Jesus through John, is about to reveal some very difficult things to these seven churches. Uh, in fact, um, there's a church in Smyrna that we'll see in a couple of weeks, uh, and they are being persecuted. And Jesus' word to them is, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. In other words, hey, my beloved, I'm not rescuing you from this. Like, the bad guys are going to win in your earthly lives, right? Uh, there are other churches where uh, he will say, Hey, guys, you had the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I really see who you are. Um, all those things will be hard. This whole book will reveal a, a view of history and where's history going that will really just blow all of our assumptions about uh, life. I mean, we, most of us, because we're Americans, we, we kind of instinctively think that history moves in a positive direction, right? that we make progress. And Revelation reveals really the opposite. Um, and so uh, this book contains much that is difficult to hear, much that... I am very tempted to perhaps ignore. And the purpose of this vision at the beginning of the book is to show us the person speaking these hard truths. It's to demonstrate to us that it is the risen Jesus with his church, loving his church, victorious over death and exalted over all. He's the one who speaks. So uh, if you want to know how to obey hard truth or if you want to know what it looks like to listen to a sermon or to read a Bible passage in a way that's going to bless your soul, this passage is for you. It shows us that seeing Jesus is the first thing. So uh, verses 9 to 11 describe how John was commissioned uh, to write uh, this passage. We see that uh, much like the Lord Jesus is in a moment, that John is on the church's team. He's on their side. He's with them. Notice how he describes himself. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So John was an apostle. He's the author, probably, of the Gospel of John. Uh, he was Jesus's, He was someone in Jesus' inner circle. He was, in fact, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Maybe one of the most important of Jesus' disciples. But he doesn't call himself that, right? Uh, he's not saying John an apostle or John Jesus' right-hand man, or even John, this lucky guy who saw these cool visions. He says, no, no, I'm your brother. Like, we're in the same family. We sit at the same table. All right, he's not just their brother. Oh, he's their partner. Uh, this, word, uh, this word means partaker. He shares in the same thing the churches do. Imagine, uh, imagine a meal. Imagine sharing a meal with someone. Not, not the way we do in America, right, where we each order our separate entrees, and it's like, don't touch my plate. You know, like, like most, uh, most cultures do family-style meals where there's food in the middle and everyone is sharing. That's, that's kind of the idea of this, uh, uh, this word. There's a, a common meal we're sharing. And what John shares with the church is the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. Uh, this word tribulation means suffering or trial or affliction. I think the idea for John uh, is almost certainly that of persecution uh, notice he's not just saying that he uh, has experienced suffering. He's actually doing it right now. Look at, uh, look at the end of the verse, verse 9. He's on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He has been exiled uh, outside of his homeland to this tiny little island in the middle of nowhere in the Mediterranean because he preached the word. And very interestingly, and I just, I just like to highlight this, I have no idea if it's true or not. It's, it's really church legend. 
So uh, we have lots of historical evidence that demonstrate the things that happen in the scriptures really did happen. There's, uh, there's corroborating testimony from uh, ancient sources. There's um, multiple copies of manuscripts, okay? But after the year 100, right, uh, stuff kind of gets a little fuzzy. Um, we're not totally sure uh, if, if church history after 100 is, this is actually what happened, or if someone really loved John and told cool stories about him. So, but church legend has it, okay, that the reason John was sent into exile was because the emperor had tried to had, have him executed several times and failed. They, uh, they dipped John, uh, again, again, according to church legend, uh, into a vat of burning oil, and he came out unscathed. They threw him to the lions, and the lions, like Daniel, just kind of sat at his feet. And obviously, uh, if that really happened, the emperor's like, well, I'm not going to try that again. I'm just going to get this guy out of my empire. So it's possible. That explains why John's on Patmos and he hasn't been killed yet, but we're not sure. But anyways, the main point of that, whether or not church legend is true, is that John really has suffered. He's not saying, yeah, suffering's a part of the Christian life up from this high tower where everything's great. He gets to hang out in his little theological study. No, no, John's, John's lived it, all right? He's done it before. Um, and he will most likely be martyred before his life is over. Uh, but notice, um, he also shares, not just in the sufferings, but in the kingdom. And the kingdom refers to the rule and reign of Jesus that begun when he came to earth, but, will, but one day will be fulfilled. So there's this day coming when God's people will be the rulers of the universe. When we, we literally will inhabit a kingdom where we share the rule with Jesus. Um, and because John has that present suffering and that future hope, he shares in the patient endurance. Um, I am, uh, I just started training for a half marathon and I had my first long run yesterday and it was kind of brutal. And I had this thought while I was running and, uh, and that is that, man, sometimes endurance does not feel very good. You know, uh, sometimes it does. Sometimes you, you wake up, run. if you're a runner, you know this, you wake up feeling great. Sometimes you wake up and it's not so great. Um, but the idea of endurance is no matter how you feel, right, no matter uh, what your circumstances are, you continue. And so what John's saying here, how he identifies himself, uh, is that I, um, I'm with you all. I'm with you in the fact that I'm suffering like you guys are going to have to. I'm with you in the fact that I'm going to the kingdom like you guys are. And I'm with you in the fact that the main thing my life should be about is continuing with Jesus regardless of my circumstances. Um, one of my favorite books uh, is To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, it's, this great, um, it's this great picture of both the light and the great darkness uh, here in Southern America. Uh, but it's, it's just really good fiction, too. I encourage you guys to read it. But anyways, there's this, uh, the hero of the book, Atticus Finch, is trying to explain uh, to his daughter... Uh, why the people in their hometown are acting so unjustly and are probably going to uh, convict an innocent African-American man of murder. And the daughter doesn't get it. She's the narrator. And Atticus says to her, you never understand a person until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Um, that's a great image, right? We, we often say that we, you know, you got to put yourself in someone else's shoes. I think the idea of getting in someone else's skin, like embodying them, living their life uh, to understand them. And what John's saying about himself 
And what we will see about Jesus in just a moment is that he has been in our skin. He understands what it's like uh, to wake up and to feel like you have no hope that my circumstances of my life are going to work out. He's experienced that. He's experienced what it's like to share about Jesus with someone and just get flat out rejected. Right? He understands that. He's experienced a culture uh, that is very oppressive and very monolithic and very pushing on you to walk away from Jesus. He's been there. And so when you read this book or you read, you open your Bible somewhere else this week and it seems to command you something uh, impossible or incredible, it seems to require of you something that is not doable or something that you fail at, just know that it was written by someone who's been in your skin and who has, by repentance and faith and dependence on the Spirit, who's lived out what they've commanded you to do. John endured. So, uh, John has been commissioned by Jesus. Just notice that we'll we'll be here very briefly. Uh, This guy who's been in our skin has been commissioned by Jesus to write this book. Look at verse 10. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears behind him a voice like a loud trumpet. Uh, That's Jesus' voice here. It speaks very loudly like a trumpet plays, but trumpets are also, uh, um, they always come along with the end of time. Uh, in the Bible. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the return of Jesus comes with a trumpet. Uh, But this ending of the world voice says to John, write down what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Real quick, um, this is another good verse that that, that kind of grounds revelation in history. Right? Jesus says, write what you see. So John's going to get heavenly visions. Okay? But then Jesus says, take what you see, all right, and send them to these seven historical churches. Uh, in fact, the order of the churches right here is the order a mailman would have taken a letter to. So, so just, just again, if, if, you, if, you don't, if you come from a church background that Revelation is a little bit weird and scary and crazy and all sorts of weird things in there, uh, just know this, this book is grounded in history. All right, but here's, a, here's the, the, really the bulk of this chapter is a vision of Jesus. So John, in his being commissioned, he sees a vision of the risen Christ. Uh, chapter, or verses 12 through 16 um, are this vision of Jesus resurrected, exalted, and with his people. We're going to learn how to listen to him through this passage. So, Look at verse 12. John turns to see this voice that's speaking to him. And on turning, he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. So the first thing John sees is seven golden lampstands. Just notice uh, verse 20 helps us. The one thing I'm sure I'm going to get right in this passage is what the lampstands are, because Jesus tells us, right? Okay. Uh, He says, uh, as for the mystery, and this is the end of... uh, End of the verse, he says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And if you're wondering what a lampstand is, it's, it's exactly what we have now. It's a stand that you put a lamp on, okay? We have electricity. They had candles. Very easy, okay? It's just a, it's a stand. They're golden, okay? Uh, but this, uh, this very simple image uh, has a lot of biblical significance. Um, lampstands were in the temple in the Old Testament, in the very, the one place in the world where God's presence was manifest, They were lampstands, golden ones, right? Um, In Matthew 5, this very familiar passage, Jesus says, no one takes a a light and puts it under a basket, but on a stand. 
that it may give life, light to all in the house. Therefore, let your good works shine before men, right? And the idea, okay, of this passage is even though, as we will see, the church is a mess, here they are the pure people of God standing in God's presence and shining his light to the world. So look around this room, all right? Look around all the, all this, the relational stuff we have in here, all right? All of the in-between coming to know Jesus and actually living like Jesus we have in here, all the mess, all the dysfunction, okay? And what is most true about us is that we are pure in the presence of God, that we shine the light of Jesus to a dark culture. That's who we are. And um, notice among the lampstands is one like a son of man. Uh, this comes directly from Daniel 7.13, where there's, Daniel gets this vision of all these beastly evil kingdoms, and after all of them comes one like a son of man, and God gives all of his rule to this one like a son of man. Uh, the son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. If you're maybe reading through a gospel right now in your Bible reading plan, you'll notice that Jesus always says, the son of man came to blank. And the idea of this, uh, idea of this little term is the Son of Man, well, first of all, he's a human being, right? Like John says earlier, he's been in your skin, okay? But second of all, the Son of Man is the Messiah, the one whom is going to rule God's kingdom, the one who God gives all of his authority to. And so notice that Jesus himself, all right, he's not way up high, just looking down, kind of at a distance, noticing how your life is going. No, he's, he walks among the lampstands. He's present with his church. He hasn't left them to, on their own. He's in this room this morning. He's here among us. And he's present with us as a priest. Uh, notice how he's dressed. This is verse 13. The Son of Man is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. In Exodus 28, we see that God has his priests wear long robes, and golden sashes. What does a priest do? A priest represents people before God. A priest prays for his people. A priest makes sacrifices to make his people okay before God. We see here, what is Jesus doing among his church? Is he grumpy, right? Is he demanding of them, first of all? No, first of all, he represents them. He advocates for them. He's on their team. Um... So the one who's going to say all of these hardcore things over the next six months to us, the one who's going to command us to come and die and follow him, the one who's going to say all sorts of crazy, astounding, and fearsome things about history, okay? He is with you. He has affection in his heart for you, right? There's no work. If you're a Christian, there's no work left to be done. Jesus has already offered the perfect sacrifice of himself. He's not, he's, not, he's, not, he's not backed up from your life waiting until you can earn the fa his favor. He's given it to you. He's present with us this morning, not like an angry judge, not like a stern father, but like a priest representing us, praying for us, advocating for us, asking God to bless us because of him. It's easier to listen to what he says when you know he's on your team. Okay, so Jesus is with his people. But Jesus is also with his people, exalted in glory. That's the rest of the vision. Uh, he's not just present. Uh, he is 
absolutely glorious. Look at verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Um, white hair throughout the scripture represents age. You know, the Proverbs say that the glory of an old man is his gray hair. Um, when Jesus appears here, he's got white hair, I think, indicating his eternity and the wisdom that comes from uh, his timelessness. You know, here in America, uh, we tend to think of age, old age, as the enemy, right? Every birthday after 30 is depressing, right? You know, or we, we don't really value, like, uh, again, our, our, our culture, okay? We don't value old people. We see them as burdens primarily, the, the, most of the rest of human history has valued the elderly. They said, man, elderly people, this is where wisdom comes from, age. So the idea here is Jesus appears timeless, full of God's wisdom, the kind of wisdom that takes even evil things and works them together for good. His eyes are like a flame of fire. In other words, he sees you. You can't escape from his gaze. Uh, eyes like a flame of fire can pierce through all of the illusions, right? They fire, fire clears the room, right? Jesus uh, is not fooled by any of our lives. You know, we, we, can, we can fool each other, right? We can pretend that we're walking with the Lord. Someone asks us how we're doing, we can say, oh, I'm fine. How's your walk with the Lord? Yeah, it's, it's good. Well, we know the reality, right? It's not. You cannot fool Jesus. You can't pretend, right? He sees you. His eyes gaze. His feet are like burnished bronze. This is verse, uh, verse 15. Burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Uh, this is probably the hardest image to interpret. Um, uh, the Roman Empire uh, used bronze for most of its military weapons. Bronze wasn't as precious as gold was, but it was much more durable. Um, and so this, uh, this image really indicates Jesus' power. And notice that it's his feet that are burnished bronze, like the feet with which he will trample upon his enemies. We'll see that in Revelation 16, that Jesus tramples upon the people who resist him to the end. And I think the idea here is that he's good, he's kind, he's a priest, but he's not a wimp, right? He's not a gentle, grandfatherly, everything's okay. No, he really will. Like his his, Jesus' first coming, right, in the Gospels that we see, that was a coming of humility. He came like a lamb, right? He came to lay his life down. And, and right now, as Second Peter told us a couple weeks ago, all right, he is waiting. He's being patient and merciful, desiring all people to come to repentance. He's good. But that patience one day will end. And Jesus is going to return like a warrior, okay, and trample upon those people who have resisted him to the end. This, uh, this bronze uh, is furnished, refined in a furnish. It's, in other words, it's, uh, it's burning and gleaming hot. I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, metal work before, but when you get metal hot enough, it glows. Uh, Jesus' power is blazing. As we go on, we just see more images of his blazing power. His, his, uh, his voice is like the roar of many waters. I don't know if any of you guys ever hiked to a waterfall, but I remember one time... Uh, there was one, uh, I, think, I think me and Sarah were in North Carolina, and there was this giant waterfall, like, just right off the road. And so we just pulled up, and it was great. There's, like, a little, and we, and we walked under the waterfall, and uh, we tried to have a conversation, and it was impossible. We've never done that before, but, but roaring water makes, it deafens you, makes anything else unhearable. When Jesus speaks, 
there is nothing else to hear. Nothing else you're able to hear. Furthermore, uh, we see in Jesus' right hand, he holds, he holds seven stars. Again, this is difficult. We see the seven stars in verse 20 are the seven angels of the seven churches. That's, again, difficult. We'll get there next week. Just be patient, okay? But the idea of him holding these in his right hand, all right, means that he rules over them. Kings in the Old Testament, New Testament, use their right hands to rule. And so Jesus doesn't just minister to his church. He's not just present with them. He's ruling over his church. He's the Lord. And it uh, goes on and on. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Again, his word is like a deadly weapon. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. If you want to know what it would be like to see Jesus visibly in his glory, a great way to get a taste is to walk outside on a clear summer day, take your sunglasses off, and look directly into the sun. Okay? Uh, actually, don't do that. It will blind you. All right? And that's the idea here. The bodily, visible presence of Jesus is utterly overwhelming. He appears there is nothing else to see. So, um, at the start of this book, before we kind of jump into the weeds of how the church is doing presently or what the future holds, all right, the first thing we need to see is the one who speaks and the one who calls us. Christ is with us. He speaks as someone present. He speaks as an ever-present help in time of trouble, as the Psalms say. He speaks as a priest. He speaks as someone who spends all of his exalted, risen existence advocating for us, praying for us, pleading for our lives, helping us. And as he's here, he is utterly overwhelming. If you could just catch a glimpse of Jesus, just a whisper of his presence, you would, like John, be undone. So uh, how do we apply this? Uh, I am attempting this year to read uh, all of C.S. Lewis's classic works. It's fairly easy because I have this app. It has all of his books on audiobook. Anyways, okay. I just finished the Screw Tape Letters. I think it's a book every Christian should read. Uh, it's a book about the Christian life and a book about temptation. Um, it's written in a very fascinating way, though. Lewis, uh, Lewis was a, liter a literary genius, but he, uh, he writes this book, and the format is it's a senior demon writing to a junior demon about how to tempt someone. All right? And when the book begins, the, uh, the person or the patient, as Screwtape says, so sinister, right? Uh, the patient is not a Christian, and so all of his advice is, how do you keep this guy far from God? But the person becomes a Christian, and uh, now uh, the junior demon, demon, demon's job is to wreck this guy's Christian life. And there's just one passage I was uh, listening to as we were on hurricane evacuation that really just ministered to me and convicted me, okay? But he is, he is trying to teach the junior demon how to make this Christian very irritable and unloving and selfish, all right, as a Christian. Here's what he says. Um, well, sorry, sorry. He's, he, and, and, and he says the key is, all right, is you want to help him assume that his life and his time belongs to him, all right? Here's what, here's what Screwtape says. You have a delicate task. The assumption which you want him to go on making, that his time and life are his own, 
is so absurd that if once it is questioned, even we, the, the demons, cannot find a shred of argument in its defense, the man can neither make nor retain a moment of time. It all comes to him as pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and moon as his slaves. He is also, in theory, committed to a total service of the enemy, God. And if the enemy appeared to him in bodily form and demanded that total service for even one day, he would not refuse. If he thinks about this assumption that his time and life are his own for a moment, he, even he is bound to realize that he is in this situation every day in the presence of the enemy. Now, uh, I just hope that passage gives you a taste of the genius of this book, but even the demons, according to Lewis, recognize that if, if you got a, a taste of God's bodily presence just for a moment, right, there would be nothing stopping you from total radical obedience to him. Just seeing him for a second, just glimpsing his glory, there would be nothing you would refuse. No suffering you couldn't endure, no hardship you wouldn't gladly take up, no 30 minutes of pain or of boredom or of not having your desires fulfilled you wouldn't, you wouldn't jump into. If you could just taste and see his glory for a second. So I think uh, this just helps us. The first thing we need to hear hard truth or really any truth is to remember and see the one speaking. You know, we, uh, we probably will not get an actual vision of the risen Christ, right? Uh, that happens very rarely in the Bible. But we can seek to see with the eyes of our heart, right? When, when Buster opens his Bible in 45 minutes and starts preaching on Ecclesiastes 2, when you open your Bible uh, this week, hopefully in your pursuit of the Lord, all right, what you need first before you hear the scriptures and read the words, all right, you need to remember the one who speaks through them. You need to see with the eyes of your heart this vision of him with you, helping you, exalted. There's a second uh, kind of more minor application. Um, a lot of us in this room struggle with the relationship between Jesus' grace and Jesus' glory. Uh, many of us in here uh, are a little too prone to focus on Jesus' grace and even redefine his grace to mean that Jesus is pretty chill, right? There's this attitude in the Western church that, that yeah, I mean, I mean, there's grace, right? Just kind of do whatever you want. I'm not going to say that, but like, like, it's not a big deal, you know? Um, that we, uh, we don't really have to lay our lives down and die. I'm just, I'm just not going to read that passage. I'm just going to focus on grace, and uh, for us who struggle with that, who try to get out of the difficult commands, this passage speaks to us and says, he, Jesus is gracious, all right? But he is gracious in the way of a glorious, ever-present Lord is gracious. Other, other, others of us, and I, I tend to be here more often than not, can only think of Jesus' glory, and you think in you fall into the trap of thinking he's never pleased with you, right? That he's always demanding more of you. That there's always this kind of stern look of disapproval over your life from the Lord. And to you, this passage says that actually Jesus' presence with you is primarily that of a priest, someone who's compassionate, someone who's been in your skin, someone who's rooting for you, someone who, in fact, yes, is pleased with you, 
who loves the little tiny baby steps of obedience you take. Jesus' nature is both grace and glory. You can't really have one without the other, in fact. All right, if you can't see that Jesus is blazing hot in purity and glory, and that he's returning one day to judge the wicked, right? And that his, that his demands, like, he's absolutely pure, right? Um, if you can't see that, right, the idea of him living and dying in your place and being a priest for you and representing you is not really going to be that great. Like, sometimes we have to see the glory of Jesus before we can experience the grace of Jesus. So, if you've been pretty chill about your walk with the Lord, if you're living in grace but not pursuing holiness, I'd encourage you to focus on the blazing glory of Jesus. If you are living with that low-grade guilt, if you're staying up late thinking about all your mistakes, I would just, if you can't think of Jesus without thinking of a stern look of disapproval, I want you to see him dressed like a priest, representing you, helping you, with you, enabling you. So verse, uh, verse 17 kind of begins where our application lands. John falls at Jesus' feet like he's dead. This vision uh, overcomes him. But notice that Jesus lays his right hand on John and comforts him, right? There's glory and there's grace. And this uh, last part of the passage gives us two more reasons to listen to Jesus as he speaks in the book of Revelation and in our lives. Uh, first, notice, uh, notice Jesus' comfort to John. This is starting in verse 17, ending in verse 18 or verse 19. Uh, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades right there for the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So when I first read this passage, uh, the question that shot into my mind was, what in the world is the connection between John writing Revelation and Jesus overcoming death? That was a question I kind of chewed on for a while. And I think the answer is that uh, what John is going to see uh, what he's going to have to write uh, are going to be some very overwhelming, maybe even fearsome realities. We're going to see things like uh, the dragon, the evil one, conquering the saints. That's Revelation 16. Uh, we're going to see Jesus speaking some very hard words to his church over the next two or three weeks. And um, what Jesus is saying here, right, is in the fact that he's overcome death, right, is that he's overcome anything you could fear. Um, I think uh, the Bible implies this, that underneath all fears, right, is the fear of death. Um, if, you, if, you fear, uh, if you fear being alone, right, uh, there is really nothing more lonely than death. If you fear discomfort or you fear pain, don't you guys know that all of us in some sense, right, even if it's 75 years from now, right? We are heading to a day, unless Jesus returns before then, right? We're heading to a day when all of us, in a sense, even if we're on morphine, will suffer and die, right? It's a reality. Nobody escapes that. It's the one sociologically proven fact, 100%. Everybody dies. And Jesus is saying here that that fear underneath all fears, 
that fear that pl plays out, right, into that evangelistic conversation you did not have at work or into that not wanting to push yourself too hard, right? Um, that fear, underneath all those fears, that fear of death, that fear of being insignificant, of not being remembered, Jesus has overcome that fear. He died. He's experienced death, and he has risen from the grave, and he promises that anyone who follows him will also overcome death. There is a day coming, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you endure, if you conquer, like this book says, where you will be with people. You will be known. You will be alive. You will be beyond pain if you endure. Jesus promises you that to help you listen to the hard things he says. Second thing he does here, um, verse 20, another reason to listen to Jesus is because he explains the crazy things that he's going to show you. Uh, look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, just note uh, verses 12 through 16. Um, most of those images would have been very easy for someone with any background in the Old Testament or any background in the first century to get. They got what burnished bronze was. They got what a sword meant. They got what uh, white hair meant. We don't get those things, so we need to work on it a little bit because we're in 21st century America. But the two things in here that most people would not have gotten are the seven stars and the seven lampstands. Those are a little bit harder. And Jesus, in fact, speaks to and reveals the most difficult thing in this passage. And I think the idea is, hey, listen, if you, uh, if you are afraid of Revelation 6 to 16, where it gets all crazy, where you got all these beasts and you got all these seals and you got all those things going on, okay, Jesus is going to reveal the truth to you. He's going to help. He's going to be good. Okay, so... Everything we've heard in Revelation 1 in this glorious vision of the risen Jesus is to enable us to hear. We need to be reminded that, in fact, Jesus is not opposed to us, right? He's for our good. Um, I, uh, I'll just finish with the story. Life with a family of five is really fun, but there are some moments that are infuriating. I had an infuriating moment on Saturday or Friday. The days just kind of blend together. Anyways... Um, anyways, it's dinner time, okay? And for dinner, all right, we have pizza and applesauce. And if you're if you're a child, okay, pizza and applesauce is the is legit, all right. And uh, anyways, um, it's time for dinner, and uh, it's time to stop doing what we're doing and to eat dinner. And um, I say, hey, Nora, Nora's my three-year-old. Nora, let's take your shoes off and put them in your cubby, and we're gonna we're gonna sit down and eat dinner. She goes, no, and I'm like, okay breathe, right? Okay, right, right, right. We're going to show grace, all right? We're going to show grace. And, uh, and I was like, Nora, stop. Take a deep breath. All right, it's time for dinner. We have pizza. It's delicious. Take your shoes off. And she just starts running away. And anyways, uh, 15 minutes of screaming and hitting daddy later, okay, we're finally ready to have some pizza. And the whole time I'm thinking, while I'm doing this, I'm thinking, I just want to give you pizza, okay? Like, like I'm not asking you, like, to go do push-ups. Like, I'm not telling you. Like, it's just pizza. And um, I think uh, in, in our sin, all right, when the scriptures say things uh, to us that are hard, that are against our assumptions, our temptation is to be like my little daughter, 
and to run away kicking and screaming. And at the end of the day, what Jesus wants to give to us is pizza. Okay? <laughs> he wants to give us life. He wants to give us good things. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the life to come. So I encourage you guys, see the one who speaks, listen to him, trust his goodness. Let's pray. Lord, um, we just thank you for your kindness. We thank you um, for your grace. Just thank you, Lord, that, that right now, in the midst of all the mess of our lives, in the midst of the mess of our culture, that you are exalted over all. And that your glory is beautiful and compelling and good. And just pray as we, uh, as we attempt to walk with you this week, um, as, we, as we seek you and we seek to obey you, I just pray you'd really fix our eyes on your goodness and kindness. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.